Welcome to the Sermon Series Podcast for the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. There is nothing more central to the life of the follower of Jesus Christ than prayer. And it is our great hope and desire that we would be marked both individually and corporately as a people of prayer. To that end, this summer, we are teaching through the Lord's Prayer, which was Jesus' response when his disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. We're so glad that you've been able to join us. If you are in the Nashville area and would like to join us in person, we worship together at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Then they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant? as I have had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Awesome. Thank you. Morning, everybody. My name is Jeremy. I'm the pastor at uh, Midtown uh, down there in Creve Hall. And our 0.8 acres and 3-2 brick ranches and uh, less pasture lands down to the south side bring you many greetings. <laughs> um, so also, I, this is the first triathlon I've ever run. So I was here for the 8.30 and then went to Creve Hall and uh, preached the 10. And now here I am back at uh, whatever time it is now. I don't even know. <laughs> So, all you triathletes out there, I see you. I feel you. We're one. Um, okay. And while, while I'm saying things um, by way of get to know you, I'm also an only child. Just so you know. Uh, only children in here? Anybody? Holler. Let's go. Okay. Everything you think you know about only children is true. Uh, my, one of my only children's stories, uh, my wife and I, before we were married, 
she was, we were having dinner over at my mom's house and we're sitting around this little table in the sunroom and there's a, uh, there's a bag of chips, only one bag of chips, that's weird, uh, right in the middle of the table. And we're just about to start eating lunch. She goes down to take one bite of her sandwich. And when she pops her head back up, I've taken the chips and I've put them on the far side of me. And I've begun to eat them one by one while she's over here like, where'd the chips go? And she looks at me as like, okay, only child. (laughs) Growing up, all of my stuff didn't get messed with. All of my stuff was able to be in its perfect place all the time. A place for everything and everything in its place. I didn't have any younger brothers or sisters with sticky hands to mess everything up. It was glorious. My kingdom of self was strong. And if you're familiar with the magazine Nintendo Power, anybody? Come on, Nintendo Power. Okay, this is... As I get older, my illustrations get more obscure. Uh, so Nintendo Power Magazine, published by Nintendo. It was like a, just a 10-page you know, advertisement. But they had these little featurette sections where you could take a picture of your room decked out in like Nintendo gear. And then they would give you like a half page like, and this is Jeremy, and this is his cool room, and these are all his video games. And so I got the great idea that I'm going to do this. And so I had the like, you know, Zelda poster in the background. And I had the like Duck Hunt vintage controllers like sitting just so perfectly up front. I had my 48 Super Nintendo games all with the little like dust sleeve that's still on there. So you didn't have to, you know, do the blowing the thing out thing. Um, Everything was pristine and perfect and exactly as it should be. And I took the picture and they never published it. Alas. But the kingdom of self was still very strong in me. That's an only child thing. Maybe that's an everybody thing. Because what we just read is an affront to the kingdom of self. What we have, this whole series, as Jesus has been teaching us how to pray and seek him, has been an affront to the kingdom of self. Because everything in us wants to earn anything good that happens to us. And then Jesus comes on the scene and tells this story about a guy who did absolutely nothing and got everything. And to our sensibilities, that makes no sense. And to Peter's sensibilities, as he's being told this story, it made no sense because Peter had a brother and his name was Andrew and he was another one of the disciples. And you had to know that as they were growing up, they've probably got into it like cats and dogs. And so he's asking this question, probably staring at Andrew. How many times do I have to forgive him before I can finally give him what's coming to him? This is the conflict between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. And over these past number of weeks, we've been trying to understand because the kingdom of God feels like this abstract principle theory. I don't really know what it means. I don't really know how to live in it. I don't really know how to pray for it. I don't know how to seek it when I walk back out those doors into my normal life. So what we've been trying to do, both at Creve Hall and at Granny White, have been asking this question, what is the kingdom of God? And thankfully, Jesus gives us these little trails of this trail of breadcrumbs to help understand what this kingdom is like. 
And so you'll see him and you'll hear him in the Gospels say things like he says here in Matthew 18. The kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And so today, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So what we're going to try to do in the next few minutes is try to follow in Jesus's method of teaching. Jesus often teaches by contrast. He says, it's not like this, therefore it is like this. This story is a contrast. It is a, this is not what the kingdom of God is like. Therefore, here's what it is. So the kingdom of God, according to this story, is a kingdom of mercy and a kingdom of justice where both of those things can live in the same area at the same time, where mercy is given and received from God to man and man to man, where justice is ensured by the Lord, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and justice is then lived out and righteousness is lived out in our daily lives. That's where we're headed. And we have this experience now in the church of tasting and seeing that reality until everything is made new and we taste it in its full. So what we're going to do is look at these contrasting kingdoms. What does mercy and justice look like in the kingdom of self? And then what does mercy and justice look like in the kingdom of God? So first, mercy and justice in the kingdom of me. Peter's question is really maybe paraphrased a different way as asking this. How much mercy do I have to give before I can give justice? Like, how much right hand of fellowship do I have to give before I can give a swift jab to the teeth? How many times, how often do I have to? How often, those of you with, with siblings, those of you with uh, spouses, those of you with close business partners, those of you with friendships, those of you who are in relationship with anyone for any amount of time know how difficult relationship can be and know how easy it is for someone to hurt you and for you to hurt somebody else. And so in this is sort of the definition, these working definitions of what is mercy and what is justice, so that we can understand how to seek it. Mercy, according to Peter and according to Jesus, is not treating people as they do deserve. Justice, then, is treating people as they do deserve. And this is a fair question to ask coming just on the heels of the previous section here in Matthew 18. If you're struggling right now, or ever have, and for certain, you will struggle with reconciliation between you and someone else. If someone has done something that has hurt you and you're struggling with how do we move forward in this relationship, Matthew 18 verses 15, 16, and 17 is a masterful description of how to go about doing that with both mercy and justice. So coming on the heels then, Peter hears Jesus talk about how we reconcile with one another when things get hard, when things go sideways. And his next question is very, very Peter-like and very you and me-like, yeah, but how many times? How often do I have to do that thing, which sounds icky, before I get to do the thing that I really want to do, which is shove his face in it? And 
the common wisdom of the day in sort of Jewish tradition and teaching was three times. Three times is how many times you had to accept someone's forgiveness. You had to extend someone's forgiveness. And then at that point, you could wash your hands of that person. So then Peter goes, well, I'll give you one better, Jesus. Not just three times. I'm going to double it and give you one more. I'm going to give you one for every day of the week, but only one week. How about seven times? Is that enough, Jesus? And his response is, no, Peter, not three times, not seven times, but depending on how you translate the verse, either 70 times seven or seven times seven. So either 49 or 490, either way, it doesn't really matter. The point is, these are numbers of completion. The number seven in Scripture and in the ancient Near East is a number of completion. So he's saying, not only always do you have to do this mercy thing, this forgiveness thing, but always and forever have to do this mercy thing. That leaves us with the question of how in the world do I get my heart in a place where I can do that? And so this story gets told. Jesus goes on to say, there's a king, and this king has uh, a number of servants in his kingdom. This king owns everything, and so he decides that it's time to go make reconciliation and to collect on these debts of his servants. So he goes to this servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now again, we have no frame of reference for what that means. 10,000 is the highest number in the Greek language that had a particular name attached to it. Uh, A talent is the highest monetary unit in their system at the time. So he's saying the highest number and the highest measurement, that's what this guy owed. If you were to actually break this down, this is somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 billion. So this king goes to this guy and he says, hey, you owe me a cool six bill. Could you just go ahead and, uh, and re-up on that? Just go ahead and give me what I owe and then we'll be able to move on. And of course the guy's like, uh, I can't do that. Like, that's an astronomical number. That's like monopoly money at that point. I can't give you what you're asking for. But then the next thing the guy does is key to understanding this passage. Because he doesn't even say, when he drops to his knees, he doesn't say, forgive me, forgive me, make it go away. Instead, what he's essentially saying is, just give me an extension. Could you just give me, just give me like another year? And I'm going to listen to the Dave Ramsey tapes. I'm going to beans and rice it. And I'm going to do everything. I'm going to invest in the right stocks. My 401k is going to accrue a little bit more. And then I'll be able to pay that thing back. You just wait. He's missing the point. And then he continues to miss the point. The king, hoping that this mercy would now extend to him and through him, he says, I'll give you one better. I'm not just going to give you an extension. I'm going to wipe your slate clean. It's gone. It's done. This astronomical, insurmountable debt that you had is paid in full. Now go be free. And with all this newfound freedom and headspace that this servant has, and all this talk of money changing hands and debts being paid off, he thinks, I got a debt too. I got this buddy of mine who owes me, he borrowed money for a used car 
And so, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, what is it, 100 denarii? It's like $12,000. Get you a good, like, Honda Accord. And he says, yeah, you know, that guy still owes me that, so I'm going to go, I need some of that back. For whatever reason, that's what this reminds him of. So he goes into, uh, <laughs> he goes in and sees this fellow servant of his. And the image I have in my head is of when Homer Simpson would get really mad at Bart and he would put his hands around his neck and like, Ugh. that's the image I have in my head of this servant going to this other servant and ringing it. It says he chokes him out. He says, pay up, pay what you owe me. I'm feeling generous, so I'm not going to kill you. I'll just throw you in jail. The guy still can't pay. He throws him in jail, and then the king hears about it. And the king says, should not the mercy that have, has gone to you been the mercy that now flows through you? What happened? What happened in the heart of that servant? We see even all the way back to when he's trying to bargain with the king. Just give me an extension. This guy did not like mercy. You and I don't like mercy either. Because naturally, when we walk into these doors, and when we walk into our workplaces, and when we walk into our children's rooms, and when we walk into whatever space and whatever sphere of influence we have, we walk in as the one who wants to be the all things. We walk in as the one who wants to justify ourselves. We walk in as the one who wants to be the best. We don't want to have anything to need mercy for. And so the things that we do kind of feel like we need mercy for, we minimize those things. And we say, well, it's not, it's not really that bad. I, I need a little bit of mercy. This is how many of us understand Christianity naturally. This is how I understood Christianity for 20 years. I, I need a little bit of mercy just to like give me a fresh start, but then it's up to me. Like I can do this. I just need a little jump start, and then I can really get off to the races. But that servant, and Peter, and me, and you, naturally hate mercy. We love justice. We love when people get what's coming to them. But there's a name for this, and only children are especially good at this word. Entitlement. Because my entire life growing up revolved around me. And so nobody messed with my stuff, so I didn't really see how bad a kid I was. I got good grades. Parents were happy with me. I was nice to people. I thought, if there is a God, I'm pretty sure he's lucky to have me. <laughs> that, that one's supposed to be funny. <laughs> But that's, that's what's in our hearts. Naturally, that's what's in our hearts. I'm a pretty good guy. I have my life together. You know, I screw up a little bit here and there, but my track record is mostly on the upward and to the right. And so, for people like you and I, the thought of having a $6 billion debt between us and the God of the universe is a very uncomfortable feeling. One, to even believe that that's true, and two, to believe that anything could be done about it. And so Peter here is struggling in his, in his line of questioning, 
And as Jesus is telling him, shouldn't you have mercy on your brother in the same way that this king has had mercy on you? All of these places we love to justify ourselves. So I think the first question to ask yourself before we go to why do I have a hard time giving mercy? Why do I have a hard time being a merciful person? What are the places and the relationships in my life where I'm struggling with unforgiveness? That's a good question, but that's really part two. Because forgiveness coming out of you, mercy coming out of you, is a fruit. The root is mercy being received and rested in by you. Because only to the degree you have drunk deeply of God's mercy for you will you be a merciful person. And so the question to us this morning first is where right now am I struggling to drink deeply of God's mercy? Where am I minimizing what's really true of me? Where am I maximizing other sin so that I don't quite look so bad? And those are the opportunities now that Jesus gives us, even in this moment, that he would begin to pierce our hearts as we open up to him just a little bit more, as the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see just a little bit more of our actual condition. Now, it's interesting when you look at Peter, and this kingdom of self that he had built up in himself. As Jesus gets closer to his death, Peter gets worse, not better. I'm, I'm going to preach a good sermon, Siri, I promise. The closer that Peter gets uh, to watching his God and Savior die, the harder he holds on to him and says, you will not do that. I have a triumphant God. I have a God who's going to lead us into green pastures and beside still waters and into lands flowing with milk and honey in triumphal procession. That's my God. Not this dying, not this lowering of yourself, not this humility, this debasing of yourself. That's not my God. This is. Peter did not understand mercy. And even to Jesus' last day, he continued to hold on to, you will not die. And I will never deny you. It may take a severe mercy, or maybe it already has. Or maybe in this very moment, the Holy Spirit is opening up to you a, a place of failure in your life where those places, crazy as it sounds, are gifts. Because only to the degree that we experience mercy for our 10,000, sorry, for our 10,000 talent, our $6 billion of debt, only to the degree that we can be honest and see those things for what they are, will we be able to be merciful people. That's the kingdom of self that we build. Now, in contrast, what is Jesus teaching us is actually 
true. Because the longer that I lived in my skin, the more that I grew up and began having relationships with other people and was hurt by others and hurt other people, the the shame and the guilt and the weight of all of those things began to rest super heavily on my shoulders. And as I get into college and had all sorts of more opportunity to fail, I continued to fail wonderfully. And there was about a years long sort of spiritual depression season where the Lord just let all that conviction sit. It was a mercy that he did. Because in that year of conviction, in that year of turning in on myself and experiencing the yuck that actually was me, I began to grow so needy and so hungry and so thirsty for a savior. And then going into my junior year, for whatever reason, I decided it was time to go to church. And I started sitting under, week after week, the good news of this Jesus who was fully God and fully man. I began to understand what Psalm 85 verse 10 says when it says that there is only one way that God can be both merciful and just. I sort of believed in this merciful God kind of thing that, you know, I'm going to do my part and then he's going to kind of make up for my lack. But when the weight of my real sin began to sit on my shoulders, he could, that kind of a God could not stand up. He couldn't bear the weight that I felt. He's too flimsy. I needed a just God who was also my justifier. And that is who this picture of Jesus is as this one who is this king forgiving $6 billion worth of debt, one who would come and live a $6 billion life, a life of perfection. Why? Because you, before your God, are meant to live a life of perfection. But have you? And have I? This list of all the things that you and I have done wrong, Jesus now stands in front of with his record of perfect righteousness instead. And not only that, he then dies this perfect death and on the cross, the mercy of our God and his justice kiss. And in that moment, there is all of that wrath that deserves to fall on you and I. Instead, we stand behind this man, Jesus. His perfect record now standing in front of us. God's wrath falling on him. His justice meted out on him instead of us. Now, for all who believe that this is their proper place, I can't do my life on my own. I have racked up a massive debt that I can't possibly pay back to God. I stand behind this Jesus who is just and justifier. Perfect life, perfect death, resurrection, now offering salvation to all who will stand in his shadow. That's the beginning of a merciful life towards anybody else. That's the beginning of a life of justice and righteousness that you so long to see in this city. Only to the degree that you drink it will you be able to live it. So, um, 
one of the, as someone who continues to struggle with believing I really am as bad as Jesus tells me I am, but also as dearly loved as he also tells me that I am, uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, if you haven't read it, read it. Um, I will, no, I won't. I was going to say I'll, I'll buy anyone one who wants, but that's a bad idea. Um, I have one at my house you can borrow. How about that? One of the things that Brennan Manning does so beautifully is, and he experienced this in his life. Uh, he's now deceased, but uh, he was both a priest and an alcoholic and struggled mightily with those two worlds. And so he drunk deeply, consistently of this merciful, just God and his love. And this is what he says. How are we then supposed to take this that we just learned and begin to live it out in the rest of our life that it actually makes a difference? How do we pray your merciful and just kingdom come in my life? This is what he says. For ragamuffins, God's name is mercy. We see our darkness as a prized possession because it drives us into the heart of God. Did you hear that? We see our darkness as a prized possession, not to glory in it, but to boast in our weakness for where I am weak, he is strong. Without mercy, our darkness would plunge us into despair. Felt that. For some, self-destruction. Time alone with God reveals the unfathomable debts of the poverty of the Spirit. We are so poor that even our poverty is not our own. It belongs to the mysterium tremendum of a loving God. I don't know what a mysterium tremendum is, but it sounds amazing. (laughs) What's he saying? He goes on to say later that I didn't learn to drink deeply of this gospel of grace by great preachers. I didn't learn it by great books. I didn't learn it by tons of study. I learned it by sitting quietly in the mercy and the grace of Jesus and letting myself be loved by him. And so for all of those places this morning that you and I are still holding on to, struggling to really open up to believe that Jesus says both you have a $6 billion debt to pay and I have paid it, then sitting still in the love of Jesus will slowly begin to crack our heart open by the Spirit's power. And as our heart begins to crack open, what's inside there is being filled up with the love of God. And as the love of God begins to fill up in you, then and only then can it begin to flow out. So pray, sit with him consistently, quietly, bringing your whole self, letting him love you. Secondly, how do you pursue a kingdom of mercy and of justice? As he begins to change you, then there are plenty of opportunities to be merciful and just around this city. Just to brag on two Midtown Creve haulers for a minute, uh, we've got two ministries down uh, in our area. One called Cultivate. Anybody heard of Cultivate? Uh, so Cultivate is at Ellington Ag Center. It exists. Both their motto is to grow food and grow people. Uh, their desire is kind of twofold. One, 
They grow food primarily to give away to uh, various food banks around town. But also the people that grow that food, they, they call um, anyone who is in need of a fresh start. So these are people coming out of addictive lifestyles, people coming out of incarceration, people coming out of messy situations, and they love on these people, and they give them job skills, and they disciple them, and they pray with and for them, and they watch people begin to grow in God's mercy and his love, beginning to flourish in new ways. Uh, a second is this group um, with Robin Dillard, Servant Group International. Uh, so Robin has been uh, a part of this ministry, loving and serving the largest, largest Kurdish refugee population is here. You know this? So fleeing war-torn places like Iraq, Iran, uh, Turkey, coming to the U.S. and finding community here. The Servant Group International then goes and befriends and loves on and gives job skills and gives connections and gives green card access and those kinds of things uh, to people who are hurting and lost and lonely. Um, these are just two. And these don't all have to be these amazing, you know, nonprofit organizations that you start. Where you work, in your neighbors around you, uh, the friendships that you have, there are opportunities all around you to shower others with mercy and to live a life of righteousness and justice, the shalom life that we eventually will live is possible now in small part. We can taste that in this room. We can taste that in our community collectively as a church, and we can continue to walk in that. And so I would just leave you I wish I could leave you with this amazing story about how from the time that I was a junior in college, I've totally understood the mercy of Jesus in every moment, and it's flowed out of me in all these amazing ways. But here's just a snippet. Two things happened to me right after I became a Christian my junior year of college. The first was I developed a heart for the homeless population that lived downtown Athens, Georgia, uh, where I went to school at Georgia. The second thing I did was start patting myself on the back for how great a person I now was that I had a heart for homeless people. And then I began to look at all my friends who I had been spending uh, all of this time with that were non-Christians and they, these were my party buddies and whatever. And then all of a sudden now I have this great heart for the homeless. What about them? What are they doing playing video games all day? And I believed in this gospel thing and I was going to church all the time. And what were they doing squandering their whole life? Do you see how quickly we can take that mercy and just squander it again? Ugh. But again, we have a Jesus who forbears with all of our mess, who showers us with his mercy and his grace. And I just want to leave you with that quote again from Brennan Manning. For ragamuffins, God's name is mercy. We see our darkness as a prized possession because it drives us into the heart of God. Let's pray. So Jesus, I can't believe that you would actually love the real me. And I can't believe that you would love the real us. How difficult it is to love somebody even when they're doing a pretty good job. How difficult it is when people are failing time after time after time. 
And yet this is your merciful, just love for us. And so I pray that you would do what we can't do. I pray that you would crack open our hearts and that your mercy would flow in. And that as it flows in, it would fill up to overflowing that we could, as we walk back out into whatever you call us into, that we would be a merciful and a just presence wherever you send us. And we pray that we would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.